Dr. Mbanga stopped hiding today, just a little. And for once, I did too. I told Captain Pike the truth about myself, and he defended me, told me I was exemplary, that he would fight for me. So why do I feel terrible? What if I hadn't saved all those lives? What would the captain, would the captain feel the same? What would he do if I wasn't a hero? One of the good ones. When will it be enough just to be an Lorian? Computer, delete log entry. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we talk about Strange New Worlds on Genreless. Welcome back, everybody. We made it to episode three. The Enterprise still goes on, and we have dilithium crystals. <laughs> Is it tridilithium? Because they mentioned tridilithium in episode one, and now it's been bugging me. <laughs> trilithium. <laughs> Not tridilithium, trilithium. Ugh. It's just one of those mornings. Uh, so, well, I mean, yes, for- full, full disclosure, uh, um, uh, uh, my house is, is currently a plague colony, so I'm a little lightheaded and, and distracted today. So if I'm a little more off base than usual, I have no excuse, but I'm going to blame the disease anyway. It is a, it's never a fitting time, but I'm going to say that it's a fitting time given the episode we're going to talk about. That's true. That's true. <laughs> it was an interesting, uh, it, it, it was interesting that they decided to do a disease episode. It's like, well, as well as things like, is it, is it, too soon or whatnot, and they just decided to just lean into it, which I thought was interesting. But hasn't every Star Trek done at least one disease episode? It's usually, I think, in the first season. No, it's it's absolutely it is it's almost a trope at this point. Um, there's some form of weird illness, that, and then then they because they, if nothing else, is it a convenient excuse to explain how the transporters work? Because they have to at some point establish how the transporters work, and disease episodes are always a good way to do that. And so <laughs> on cue, it's like. But our transporters filter out, blah, 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 bloop, bloop. And it's like, okay, cool, great. Um, and so we get this episode, which I, I liked, but also, um, like you All said, right. it, it's, it's a trope. Before we go into it, I will give a, a quick synopsis of the episode. Yep. <clears throat> then we can sort of ping pong around wherever we want to, just in case for some reason someone hasn't watched the episode yet. And they chose to listen to us, which I say, thank you, but you may want to yes. consider watching the episode. Right, because spoilers. All right, the the skinny. The Enterprise investigates the disappearance of an Illyrian colony. The Illyrians are a species that were banned from the Federation due to genetic engineering. And most of the away team that's on the planet beams back to the ship before an ion storm hits. But we have Pike and Spock trapped on the planet because Spike was trying to recover additional information about the missing colonists. Mm -hmm. Back aboard the ship, the there's a virus slash disease slash unknown contagion that sort of infects a crew that makes them all want light and it brings them some sort of pleasure to the point where they're willing to hurt themselves to get it. We discover that number one is immune to the disease, immune to the light effect for some reason. Mm-hmm. While back on the planet, we have Pike and Spock investigating still about the missing colonist and they deduced that the colonists were trying to remove their own bioengineering bits so they could then go and join the federation mm-hmm. while they're also haunted by these weird plague like wraith creatures that are in the ion storm mm-hmm. and aboard the ship number one um we find out she's actually an Alorian who is immune to disease and they sort of synthesize a cure based on her blood and on the planet, the wraith-like creatures break into the room where Pike and Spock are, protecting them from the ion storm, and they leave. Which the two of them d- decide that those fan- plasma wraith creatures may in fact be the colonists themselves, and that's what happened to them after moving all of their bioengineered parts. Right. And we wrap up the episode by finding out that the reason the transporter didn't operate properly is Dr. Mbanga had secretly been storing his dying daughter in stasis until they could find a cure for her. And number mm-hmm. one admits to Pike, who she also admitted earlier in the episode, that she is an Lorian. Mm-hmm. And the doctor says something about that we that humanity should try to move past those racial prejudices, racial, ah, racial prejudices. And Pike 
says he doesn't care because number one is the best officer that's ever served and all the people that were saved. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, that's it. Yeah. And I mean, like this is X-Men style prejudice metaphor, right? It's the, we're going to talk about prejudice, but we're going to shift onto a made up sci-fi thing to be prejudiced about. Which I have so many problems with this that I can't even begin to explain it. Mm -hmm. So I'm very mixed on this episode. I'm going to start by saying the episode, very well written. Rebecca Romaine killed it. Yeah. But me as a viewer, I have problems with this metaphor and this trope because it lets people disassociate having to engage with prejudice and racism and everything else by it not representing something they would have to engage with. It's always been difficult. And the 60s, because I saw some of those too, It was. I still think they should have been more straightforward with it. But mm -hmm. in current day and time with the political climate that we're in and the terrorism that is white nationalist, we should be telling stories like blunt and to the point to try to reinforce to people that the this is our world. This is like a real reflection of what's transpiring and not give them that distance to say that, oh, it's just some alien sci-fi show. Right. I mentioned uh, X-Men because I think X-Men falls into the same problem in the sense that both Star Trek and X-Men were initially created in the 60s. And they could only talk about this through metaphor because if they had tried to just directly, they would have been canceled. They never would have made it to the public. So the only way to have this conversation was to basically use, frankly, marginalized, underappreciated media to try to even get this conversation going. Uh, but to your point, um, as those projects have evolved and become popular to now, they should be updating to be more intersectional. Um, there is a great podcast called J. M. Miles Explaining the X-Men. Um, it is exceptional. Like, 380 episodes it's massive but um uh one of the creators is a trans man and uh he talks very eloquently and frequently about uh how x-men uses the metaphor for prejudice well but also often falls down on intersectionality uh and star trek falls in the same boat right uh, uh, the argument is is that uh, the Federation is a society that no longer has those prejudices, but that's an invalid argument for this episode structure specifically. This is a colony we're talking about. The colony could have had those prejudices. Um, I'm also mixed, but for slightly different reasons, uh, because um, – the metaphor being presented is closer to my own uh, marginalized identity in the sense of it's medical. Um, it's the, because you have a body that does not conform to what we consider to be acceptable standards as a culture, you are being marginalized. Uh, but the disability metaphor falls down because the colonists said, oh, well, then we'll just become able-bodied effectively. And I really dug what number one did here uh, is because number one's like, my body works differently. And I have tried to hide that, which a lot of people with invisible disabilities do. Uh, they try to act like they're able-bodied as much as possible, especially people like me with hearing loss. Um, it is shameful to have hearing loss for a lot of people because it's sure to make you quote unquote old. So they will use invisible assistive devices. They will hide their assistive devices as much as possible. Um, the the old trope of the um, grandparent who clearly cannot hear well but acts like everybody else is the problem that comes from institutionalized ableism and to see a character be like no I accept that this is who I am and also to dig into the inspirational disabled person metaphor which is a separate problem of um isn't it so courageous that they've overcome their disability to be such a productive member of society? It's it that's 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 horseshit. That that's that's horribly offensive because it's like number one is just a good officer, and that's what Pike's point is. Um, the the problem I have is 
That's not actually what the episode's about. The episode is clearly about race. So they took one marginalized identity to represent a different marginalized identity. And that bugged me. I think it sounds like some really bugged you as well. A lot. And it was... So normally before we do these, I will rewatch the episode so I can watch it twice. And this time around, I could not bring myself to watch it again in such a short duration because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I will say, taking that off the table, I mean, because... One thing we've said very being in the podcast, we repeatedly is like, you know, we both believe that all is political, so we're not going to shy away from these conversations. So I'm not trying to discount this conversation. But aside from that, I still really did enjoy the episode. Um, I think, I don't want to say look past, uh, but outside of that structure, um, it's still a very kind of classic Trek episode and, and it does a lot of the same things we've talked about before. Um, it progresses uh, number one's character arc, uh, and the Star Trek nerd in me, um, this is not an unusual development for number one because how she was presented in uh, the cage and bits and pieces of ancillary media since then have certainly implied that there's something unusual about number one, that she is somehow above human. Um, so making her this kind of genetically manipulated character makes sense. Uh, it also had to progress uh, Soon's character, um, particularly the fact that she wasn't manipulated and the abuse she got for people believing that to be the case. Again, it's so clearly a racial metaphor, uh, which is frustrating, but it's still, it, it flipped the expectations to a bit, which, which gave both those characters something interesting to do on the screen. And uh, how, um, like, I, I, like, I liked Mbenga's the fact that he's more than just the doctor on the ship. He's got something else going on. Uh, I do not like how he handled that situation. Um, you mean endangering the lives of all the crew? That Multiple seemed times. forced to me. Uh, I wasn't a fan of that. You know, it's funny, the more we talk about this, the more I realize I don't know how much <laughs> I liked it at the time. Like I watched it, it was a fun episode. Um, but now we talk about it, it's like, uh, maybe I didn't like it as much as I thought. <laughs> and we're only three episodes in, but I'm curious if they're already warfing Mbenga. Yeah. Because we've had three episodes, Mbenga's not been able to solve any of the medical-related issues. It's usually like uh, Chapel, who ran down the purse in the hall in the first episode mm-hmm. after they had a runner for them not giving them proper dosage. This time around, number one, base, number one, chapel and someone else sort of like solves a problem it is it is i am my my sensors are up because i'm noticing these small little things that lead to like a larger problem Mm -hmm. right and mbanga it seems weird that the character would not have done something else for their daughter like i understand i i would i would risk all starship to save my kid but that if he takes a kid out of stasis to read the kid a story, why couldn't he have taken her out of stasis during that time when they were updating the ship sensors, like the transporters? Right. Um, it's it, it's not quite a plot hole uh, because I could think of arguments around that. But the truth is something you mentioned the first episode was, oh, hey, they have medical transporters. That wasn't really a concept in the original Star Trek. So they introduced this new concept and then explains that this new concept is the reason for the problem that the ships run through in episode three. So it kind of begs the question of, yeah, like why couldn't he have just moved her to like a cargo transporter or something? Um why couldn't if if the ship was in it's presumably that it was in space dock when they got these upgrades happening why couldn't he move to her to you know an off ship uh our personal transporter you know some other place uh it also kind of raises the question because how the transporters work has always been muddy in star trek uh because sometimes the pattern is something that has to be kept in a transporter buffer specifically 
because it is some kind of of matrix that has to be held in suspension, almost like a a, a, a liquid and solid kind of suspension. And sometimes it is just computer data, which means you could just drop her into a USB drive and carry her <laughs> around. Uh, so, um, it, it, it was for a B plot. I mean, I know what they're going for and, and I think it, it largely works as far as an emotional beat, but it raises a lot of questions. And I, th- I think your point is valid is the chief medical officer has not been front and center for the two medical crises the ship has had so far. Whereas in the original show, McCoy came across like he was literally the only doctor in the entire medical division. <laughs> and now it's like they clearly have a start. And you're right. Chapel is getting a, a disproportionate amount of the lines effectively, you know, the, 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 the problem solving bits. And in this case, I mean, Umbengo wasn't like portrayed as dumb. I mean, but the problem is that he got all the lines of why we can't do something. You know, number one's like, just take this out of my blood. It's like, you can't because your things did blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then Chapel's like, what about this? And then stuff happens. Um, yeah. It, you could have flipped that, right? You could have flipped that so that the 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 nurse was like, oh, here's the reasons why we can't do that. And then I'm thinking, like, what about this? I mean, you could have flipped those lines around. It wouldn't have changed the story structure at all. Um. The only argument you can make is that he was distracted due to the concern over his daughter. But again, that was not really sold any way, shape, or form. If they had made a comment in episode one reviewing his file and saying that um, his performance has been slipping on the Enterprise because he's been worried about or because his daughter disappeared or something to set that up better. But it wasn't. It was. It was the downside of the episodic structure they're looking at is that they have to set up and resolve the character arc inside the episode, as opposed to doing it over multiple episodes. And while we've been praising, at least I've been praising the episodic structure of this, this is one of the flaws of that '90s era Star Trek is because shit would just be forgotten between episodes because that wasn't the way television was structured. The Voyager is famously bad about this. Um, because you're trapped in the, the Delta Quadrant and so you only have a certain amount of, of supplies and yet the numbers of those supplies change constantly between episodes. You have 25 torpedoes, you have 12 torpedoes, you have 65 torpedoes, you have one torpedo. Um, and it's just really inconsistent. So it only it becomes the resource only matter when this week's plot call, calls from the matter. And we have the same kind of problem here is that all the stuff... Anubenga is is plopped into the middle of a medical episode. And it's like, if they had been attacked by plasma creatures or whatever, and this was Umbenga's plot, it would make much more sense. Because like, I, I can't help with this thing. So I'm more focused on my family. That would make more sense. But it's like, no, he should be doing his job. I am okay with episodic structure. It is not my favorite. I'm more of a, a Straczynski school where you have a solid like novel-esque series. That's why I love Babylon 5 so much. And it helps build the characters. It helps you pace out your plot beats. It helps you sort of seed things throughout the entire series. And part of me is almost now curious if if it doesn't change an episode or two, if they're going to write Mbanga out by season two. Because do we I know don't... when do we know when Bones actually shows up in the other timeline? Uh, so... <laughs> This is where it gets fuzzy because uh, the origins of the Enterprise crew have changed depending on which media you're reading. But my general understanding is that um, Kirk and Bones actually went to the Academy together. And so they were assigned to the ship relatively some more time. The main reason why uh, McCoy is lower rank than Kirk is because of McCoy's antithesis to transporters. He actually generally did not seek out starship duty, which therefore limited his promotional circumstances. Kirk kind of convinces him to come along. Um, there is a difference. Uh, Chief medical officer, it was all in the cage. So um, prior to this, it was assumed that he was the, I forget his name, but he was the medical officer for the entire time under Peg's command. But now that we have Menga here, um, it sounds like Menga, something, he steps down, uh, he's still in the crew. He's still on McCoy's medical staff as of season two of OG. 
so he doesn't go away as far as I know. Uh, but he may step down from the chief medical role. Uh, someone else takes over, and then McCoy takes over after that. Okay. So, like, now all my sentences are up for whenever I watch the show. I'm going to be looking for certain things. Mm. And that's one of the problems, at least for me, being a marginalized person that loves creative, that loves watching television movies, and also a writer, and I look for story beats, and you can pick up warning signs relatively quickly right and i'm hoping that the show course corrects next episode right uh but one thing that i i I did like about this episode is um it does look like they're starting to subvert some track tropes a little bit i don't know if it's intentional or i don't know if it was just this would be a cool moment but like this episode is exhibit should be exhibit a of why the command crew should not beam down to the fucking planet Yep. <laughs> because your science officer and your captain, the people you really needed to help on the ship with this medical crisis happening, are stuck on the planet. And number one, you beamed the three of them all down yeah. together. And the chief and the chief security officer. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's like, we had some of them back. And I mean, EBD-GBD... Uh, uh, transporters didn't work for this, worked for the people, whatever. I mean, that, that's every Star Trek episode. But but the, the fact is, uh, your captain and your chief science officer were trapped in a room and forced to read in a rainstorm while the rest of the crew was actually having serious problems. But and it should be, this is why this is why you should not you should not be beaming down on the planet. Technically, they were attacked. Quotation marks. Um. <laughs> By weird plasma wraith-like creatures. Oh, okay, so they were stuck in a zombie zombie film for twenty-two minutes. <laughs> Although but, it was inter- interesting to see that the first response from Pike would have been to shoot the plasma s creatures. Right, and I think it one thing we did see that you picked on last episode was um, Pike trusting his officers. Uh, Spock was reading the records during the time they were trapped. And Pike never really questions why Spock was doing it. He was just like, can we cut to the end part? <laughs> he was, you know, like, he was impressing the time concern, but it was never like, why are you wasting your time with this? Is that, okay, you clearly have a good reason for this. Getting more knowledge makes sense. However, your thoroughness is perhaps at odds with our immediate survival needs. <laughs> and I think that's a fair criticism. <laughs> But it wasn't like Spock. Why are you doing that? Which, which I actually dug. It was Pike going, "Okay, I see where you're coming from, but can we jump to volume twelve, whatever? We get to the good stuff." And it was also nice to see that he didn't question the crew who he knew was in danger, whether or not they could do it without him. It's the fact that I think even perfectly, like I don't like being here when I can't help them. Right. It wasn't they can't do it without me, but. I need to be there to help them because that makes me feel better. Yes. Yes. Um, also, you said something that I thought was very telling is uh, that after they get attacked by the plasma creatures, um, that uh, they decided that the plasma creatures were in fact the colonists, which is true because they have no actual evidence to base that on. They just made an inference. It wasn't even a deduction. It was an inference based on the, the circumstantial data they had. Like, this is a reasonable outcome. But even Spock's like, this could be the answer. We don't know. Whereas Pike was like, yep, that's the answer. (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh. But again, we saw that in the last episode, right? Um, Where Uhura's like, here's all the options. And Pike's like, so the comet predicted this. Okay, that is the answer. (laughs) Captain, I mean, okay, whatever, sure. You know? Um, I, I like that because, it, it, I mean, as a, as a captain, it makes sense. You have to make snap decisions all the time, and so sometimes you don't have the luxury of debating all the options. So it's like, I'm going to pick the one that makes the most sense to me, and I'm going to go. Um, and so it's like that, that, that feels tonally correct while not discounting the expertise of his crew. And also, <clears throat> it doesn't make Pike seem stupid 
because they can go the other way, right? It's like your, your captain's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's like, no, he he's smart. It's just that he has to think about the more immediate large-scale concerns, whereas Spock, as a scientist, naturally is going to try and find all the information and make the best decision. That's what a scientist should be doing. A commander does not do that. A commander makes a decision now based on the best information you can get at hand now. Mm-hmm. And don't forget that once everyone else goes on to keep trying to research and find things out, Pike has to write up a report that'll go back to Starfleet. Right. And if the Starfleet upper command is anything like the ones I've interacted with, they read the first paragraph. It doesn't <laughs> matter if it's a hundred pages, if it's like a novel, what's that executive summary say? One paragraph being alien sentient meteorite predicted. Got it. Thanks Pike. Right. Well, actually, that raises up an interesting point. I'm curious your thoughts on this. Um, this is the second, arguably third episode in a row where Pike is just flat out ignoring military directives. And now we have the first officer also flat out ignoring military commands, uh, orders. What are your thoughts on that? Why bother to have a federation? <laughs> I, it, it sounds flippant, but... Kirk rarely listened to whatever the Federation doctrine was. Uh-huh. C- considered one of the greatest captains ever. Right. Cisco adhered to it a lot, but when it got a little little pressure, Cisco also ignored it, and that's when he became one of the greatest captains ever. Yep. I can't speak to Janeway. Oh, um, <laughs> I can't. I've I've never no, no. I've never seen I'm Voyager. I'm laughing because Janeway is like, we are the Federation. We're going to follow all of these rules until the prime directive is extremely mildly inconvenient. And then we're going to wildly disregard it at any moment. <laughs> uh, Archer didn't necessarily have the Federation. We have it now, but Archer right. did kind of whatever he wanted. Sure. In fact, I specifically reference Archer because I fell down a rabbit hole. My research is what I do. Um, the Illyrians were part of an episode from Enterprise with Archer oh. where Archer and his crew stole their warp drive leaving the Illyrians stranded like a couple years from any home planet so that they could get back to Earth. Oh my god. So <laughs> falling down that wormhole and and seeing seeing and reading that and I was thinking what exactly did number 1 see in the Federation? Hmm. I could steal people's warp drives, leave them stranded because it is the right thing for me and my crew to do. So what I'm hearing is Uhura was right. (laughs) Maybe we should leave the Federation. I am just saying there's all these things that make it impossible to think the Federation is a good idea. Like I understand the structure and everything is that they're trying to put there. They should have a different organization that as, uh, it's it all it won't it, all right I'll preface it by saying it would not be interesting television if your crew adhered to every Starfleet reg and didn't deviate at all right but, but it's how the Federation works so I mean let, let's contrast this with, with with your favorite show Babylon 5 um I think the difference there is that Babylon 5 also regularly violated earth law. But also Babylon 5 took the time to realize, set up that Earth law is kind of dumb and at times actively endangering the people of Babylon 5. Uh, so there's more logic behind it, right? Uh, it's, it's the, okay, well, this law was made by corrupt politicians or sp- spun out because of a highly reactive media. So – we're going to follow these orders, or, or in, in, in one plot arc, the orders are flat out illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, so Straczynski sets up the time to go, no, you as the audience completely are behind this, recognizing that this is a dangerous course to take, but still. And the other side is that Babylon 5 also plays out the consequences of violating those orders. They don't get away scot-free from that. They're, they're not – they're still – they still have to struggle with the decision to do that. Even if it was the right thing to do, it still doesn't change the fact that they did in fact violate orders. And that comes up and becomes resonant. Um, with Star Trek, it has, I think, two general problems. One is uh, the, the, the defense of it is, 
well, we're so far out in the middle of nowhere, no one's going to know. Uh, which I think raises the question of how many other federation ships just basically go privateer. You know, they, they just go out in the middle of nowhere and just start wrecking shit and Starfleet has no clue if, if that's what we're setting up. The other is that uh, Roddenberry's vision of this very utopian society puts into place that these rules are there for good intended reasons, even if the reasons don't pan out to be good. Um, so later Trek has kind of tried to twist those into politicians trying to put in dogmatic, heavy-handed laws and regulations that don't account for nuance. And that's the way they kind of go through the middle ground of the, the prime directive is a simple rule that cannot apply to real world situations. Even though a lot of the time when the prime directive is violated, when you think through the consequences, you realize, Oh, there's actually a very good reason why it's put in place and it probably should not have been violated. Uh, in this case, we have the sense of um, genetic manipulation is outlawed and that perhaps we should reconsider that heavy handed stance. Um, and it, to the, 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 the episode itself positions that as like, well, of course, you know, if people want to manipulate their own bodies, they should be allowed to do so. And, and you can see some real world analogs for that of like, you know, if people want to get tattoos or if they want to do body modifications, you know, that, that, that's their choice, then they're not really harming anybody. But uh, on the real world side, as, as uh, Soon kind of points out, um, that doesn't change prejudice. People are still going to look at that and be prejudiced against it. So just saying, well, these people are okay, um, doesn't change the fact that the culture is not going to that, that easily shift to it. And then on the Star Trek side, the very real reason of the reason why it was banned is because they almost destroyed the planet. So that's going to be a hard road to, to, to hoe, as it were. Um, but that point but, was also... 200 years ago where they almost destroyed the planet. Right. right. Before warp um, drives, before everything else. So that for me is a harder thing to like get with. 200 years of progress and scientific advancements encountering other alien species. It seems like that is a peculiar sticking point. But as someone well, who is also targeted constantly by racism... Uh, uh, let's say it's like there, there's no real analog of 200 year old laws being horribly outdated and still being upheld as the political ideal in outdated circumstances. You know? But um, in a, a Roddenberry in utopia. True, 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 true. That should have changed and progressed past that. Right. Um, and that's one thing that kind of, again, one thing that bugged me, but I, I really feel it came down to just time in writing. It's like you, you couldn't really dig into nuances of this per se. Um, but it's kind of fucked up that an entire society has to basically physically change their bodies in order to be accepted. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that really bugged me on a subconscious level because at the time watching it, I was like, okay, all right. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, that, that's just not, that's weird. That, 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 I'm not sure how I feel about that because again, that utopian society of like, we can accept Vulcans, but we can't accept humans who have changed their body. And in this case, changed their body to adapt to new environments, to explore the very thing that Starfleet is allegedly supposed to be about. We can even accept Gorn eventually, can't we? I, I think, I think, did the Gorn join the Federation? I feel like they do. I thought they Everyone did joins the Federation eventually. Ah, oh, that, that's a whole Borg joke I could have made right there. If I let it go. No, you did. You did. We're, we're never going back to it. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. This is one of those cases where uh, I think analysis almost harms the show a bit. When we get into these kind of deeper dives onto the, the shows we talk about, uh, we saw a little bit in uh, our Robotech episode. I had to, 
double check and see which episodes have been out. Um, but with <laughs> the Robotech episodes, um, where as we dug in, it's like, oh, that's actually not as cool as we thought it was or whatever. Um, so sometimes I admit watching for pleasure and watching for analysis can change in skewed perspective, but it, it doesn't take away from the fact of what you're talking about, which is that you can't on see when a show is directly telling you that your identity is not as not as strongly valued. Mm-hmm. That's not analysis. That's just you can't unsee that, and it's frustrating. But at the same time, I, I think maybe we we shift to some of the things that we actually enjoyed more about it because. I got to say, even as we're sitting here, one of the coolest scenes for me in the entire episode was when I forgot the name, but the engineer is in the transporter bay beaming up. Yes. Like brilliant. That shows off how smart the character is, how dedicated they are and how scary science is. Also for me, um, and this is the dumbest thing to be excited about, but I was so glad to see a strip that finally understands how fo- how proper quarantine procedures work. <laughs> Because it's like so many shows, it's like, hey, this this um, plague is broken out. So we're just going to walk around the halls and bump into each other and walk into confined elevators, and it's fine. And this was like, no, stay in your fucking quarters. Go to your dedicated <laughs> workstations. Do not touch each other. For the love of God, just stay away from each other. It didn't work, but it tried. <laughs> I'm like, well, thank you, Star Trek, for recognizing that this is a thing we should probably be doing in these circumstances. <laughs> And it was great having Rebecca Romaine have her own Kirk moment where like with the shirt ripping. Cause I think that was like a direct <laughs> shout back to like old school. Cause uh, like the gold uniform, gold uniform, shirt rip, shirt rip. And then like all the light and everything and how it just dissipates the energy and the disease. Like great scene to see. Mm-hmm. And watching number one, sleuth around the ship, like for Uhura's bed chamber and everything else to figure out why that didn't work. Like those were nice touches, and um, uh, again, some of the quieter moments with uh, a number one and soon, uh, because once the initial conflict had kind of been resolved, uh, uh, soon brings a valid point of like, you lied to me. I thought we were friends, uh, and it echoes a plot that I actually like from uh, one of the novel series. Uh, uh, Peter David um, did a great run called New Frontier. Uh, which was basically um, set in the next generation setting, but basically uh, a new ship called the Excalibur and a whole new crew. Uh, There's like a couple of really minor, like the animated series tie-ins, but like it was generally a whole new crew. And basically he just goes off in a whole sector of space and he's given like very little oversight and there's a whole arc of why that's a bad idea. But one of the characters, the science officer uh, is a female Romulan but she was raised by Vulcans and did not realize she was a Romulan until later on in the novel series. Hmm. Spoiler for a 25-year-old novel series. Uh, and so she finds out and does not tell the rest of her crew. They eventually find out because that's how these things always work. And uh, so as individuals, her crew ultimately forgive her, but she still loses her commission as Kick-Out Starfleet. That's not going to happen here, but it was there were some interesting conversations of I know why you did it. I respect why you did it, but it does not change the fact that I feel as a person you've been lying to me for years. And I don't know who you are now. Um, and it was interesting to see, like, it, one of the things I like about the novel series is there are genuine consequences for actions because novels could do that in a way that TV shows can't. Uh, so they can kill characters off and they can rearrange things. Um, at one point in time, the crew actually is scattered across two different ships and a couple different planets. Uh, but I liked that moment of I, I, I forgive you, but our relationship has changed and that does, is not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, whereas Pike, I, I still dug it actually. Um, Cause he was like, you're number one. Um, whether you're human or learning, that, that doesn't change. Um, but also given how warm their relationship was and at the end of their small notes of, he started calling her number one. Um, instead of Una. And it didn't seem like they were as close at the end of the conversation as they were even the previous episode. For me, what would have really cemented that though is Pike having said that and saying, but adding in, 
I am still going to report this and defend you regardless of what happens. And then that puts the onus on Starfleet. And that's how systematic change happens. Right, right. And Um, even the TV show, though, while it couldn't be wrapped up this episode, that leaves it as a plot seed for future episodes. Sure, because then you could go through the other great Star Trek trope, which is a trial. Yep. (laughs) Every Star Trek show has a trial episode. (laughs) And then you get all those same fields, but then you also show how you make change. Change doesn't happen by private individuals deciding to accept, quotation marks, someone for who they are. It goes to make the entire organization and populace better so that we don't have to have these things happen. Mm -hmm. And spinning off of that, to go back to your speech at the beginning, um, while we've talked about the potentially problematic uh, uh, shifting of marginalized identities, I do like the fact they still dug into the um, the idea of I'm only being accepted because I am supporting the status quo. And would I get the same acceptance if I didn't reinforce the status quo? It, it wasn't a lot, but it was, an, it was a bit that they didn't have to add, and they did. It's the, because I'm a hero, I'm getting this leniency. Would I still have this if I were not? And we would like to think the answer is yes, she would have gotten that if she hadn't been, but we genuinely don't know the answer. Well, it also leans into the the old, I guess I'll call it a proverb. Proverb, at least for a black people, is where you have to work three times harder to get half as much as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 it's, it was cool that they recognized that this is more complicated than just everyone slapping their hands, going, nope, it's all good. This will never be a problem again. You know, they recognize that this is, this is not a, this is a messy answer. Perhaps not as messy as we would like to again, again, but at least there's some nods towards that. And while it was, for me, it's a plot hole. I did like the fact that they gave Mbanga something else to do as like the last, almost the final scene of the entire episode to Mm -hmm. sort of add some additional depth to the character because we haven't had a lot of that. Yeah. And, and frankly, I mean, him reading to his daughter was super fucking cute. I, I loved the dynamic of it in a very short space because that, that girl had like maybe six lines. But um, you, you got a sense of a real relationship there, like the fact that the story that he's read a hundred times and she knows it, but he's pretending like, you know, it might change. And it was it was it was adorable and really helped cement this relationship that it backfilled the relationship that we're meant to care about. It's like, I like to have cared about the relationship before we got there, but at the end, we both got it. And from the number of times they've said they've read the story, that also implies that she could have been, she could be in buffers for years, decades. Right. I mean, like, so it, it I was doing some kind of back to napkin math after that episode. And cause first it bugged me too. Um, but he did say that watching her declining years, which implied that it would be a long decline. And if he takes her out, say, half an hour every month, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a long time to try to find a solution. Uh, and given how casual she was during that, I assume at some point he had a conversation with her explaining his plan and she on some level is accepting it. How much she accepted. I don't know about the psychological trauma of being put into a stasis for a month at a time. Uh, only to be unfrozen when your dad feels guilty and wants to read you a story. But uh, I, I could see the, the logic of, okay, I can take her out for, for short bursts to have some kind of relationship with her without endangering her too much. If, if, it, if it is disease on a long timeline, it's not like she has an hour to live. Uh, but I also, we also don't know if maybe he, what he did pull her out of the buffer to like run tests on her. And that may have also happened at various points. We, we don't know. Uh, so that didn't bug me as much, but it still bugged me because I had to fill in all of that. <laughs> I had to to bring that to the table to try to make all that make sense. And the show could have easily done that with a line or two. Uh, is there anything else about this episode? Um, 
it, it's funny that, well, not funny. Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm glad for it. Uh, uh, this show could have very much been the Pike and Spock show. And uh, episode one, kind of goes going that way. But I also recognize these are the two main characters. You have to establish them. And then episode two moved Pike and Spock to supporting roles, which I thought was, again, good. Uh, this episode takes it a step further. And Pike and Spock are really the B-plot, frankly. The, except to look like they might be the A-plot, but in fact, they are the secondary plot to the episode. And I actually really liked that because for two reasons. One, it shows, we talked about before, is that the rest of the crew are very capable without Pike and Spock hovering over their shoulder. Uh, so it gave a chance for the entire crew, sans the two big characters, to actually do cool stuff on their own. And I think that was important and necessary, and I'm glad it was done. The other thing is I think it set up a, a little bit of what their relationship is going to be like. It, it is a bit Kirk and Spock in dynamic. Um, I, I don't think they quite found their own unique third path yet. But I did like that they had a relation. I did have a professional relationship that maybe become a personal friendship, but they're not quite there yet. But they certainly are comfortable enough with each other's professionalism. That there were a couple of jokes here and there, but they're much more Pike trying to diffuse the, stre the, the stress of the situation rather than necessarily making fun of Spock. And uh, Spock was quietly competent without dominating the plot. So it, 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 it's small. It's a very simple storyline, really. I mean, basically, they, they run into a barn. They get trapped in the barn. There are enemies in the barn. Uh, Spock figures out that they may not be enemies at the last minute. It turns out that they're friends, and then they go home and they're safe. It, it's not a complicated storyline, but in that moment, there are small little scenes, and the two actors really show that you just put two of them in a room and talk, they can have some really cool and engaging story. But they also didn't overstay their welcome. They didn't focus on them. There was just enough screen time to get it across and then get them back out of the way. It was, it was a good story structure from that regard, and I'm glad they went that direction. That does make me think now that I am going to be keeping an eye on Pike and Spock's friendship because they have to reach the point during the run of the show where it would make sense for Spock to then risk his entire career later on to go and take the Enterprise to take Pike back to the planet. Right. And that is a level of friendship that is like extreme and it's just not, I, I served under you, sir. That's like a care and affection. Right, and I think I think they've started building that road, but right now it's that Pike has inspired loyalty for most of his crew. It's not specific to Spock right now, uh, because the dinner party scene from last episode, which again I will continue to rave about, uh, really established that most of the crew trust each other, and particularly Pike. And uh, like the fact that nobody even considered, hey, maybe we should, you know put Pike and Spock on hold while we figure out our problems up on ship. No, part of the reason why the onboard ship problem happened is because they were also simultaneously still trying to rescue Pike and Spock. So they weren't 100% devoted to resolving this, this light virus thing, which by the way is such garbage science. And I love it. And it's like, this makes no goddamn sense. <laughs> I just don't even care. There's a certain point in Star Trek where the science just goes just completely around the corner and it's like, okay, you, whatever. It's just cool. Right. Just deal with it. And it's like, okay, yeah, no, I'm, I'm cool. I'm deal with it. Light virus. All right. That's totally a thing that can hell happen. Um, but you're right. I, I think you're saying the seeds for by having them two alone, they can start to build on that. And which means probably going to have more Pike and Spock beaming down to planets because that's clearly a, a, a smart thing for a ship to do after having learned this lesson. We're like, yeah, we're going to keep doing that. that. That won't ever happen again. We'll never have any more transporter problems whatsoever. <laughs> Oh, I almost forgot my, my final thought. Not, not related to that though, is about number one. Mm -hmm. Do you think the changes they made to number one were actually influenced by dark matter and two? Uh, I don't know if it was intentional. Um, I think it's probably more likely that they're coming from the same source, right? Of how do we make a, female leader character interesting 
in an environment where recognized that making them damaged is not a way to make them interesting anymore. Because that was very much the 90s, right? Like Buffy, Vampire Slayer, and all that. There's a lot. A lot of people love Buffy, and, and I, I have no issues with it, but certainly a lot of the female characters were, were strong because of all this trauma. And it's like, no, they're just strong. And certainly number two uh, was kind of in the same boat of like just a cool character. And number one's kind of the same place, but now they almost walked it back a little bit. It's like, well, I've been holding a secret shame. But again, it's the – not that I'm ashamed of myself. It's because society's stupid. <laughs> no, it's like, okay, it's fair. fair. Um, but also, I mean, just numerically, we know that number one is clearly twice as effective as number two. It's just that's how the numbers work. So, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's just mathematics. I mean, that's not an opinion. <laughs> no one can see the, the the Cisco face palm I just did, but I'm sharing it with them now. <laughs> Any closing thoughts on this? Because we're going to end on that. Wow. Um, only other thought was like. Uh, uh, I think this, this has been fun to do specials, uh, but I think um, uh, we should get back to talking about giant robots. I think so. Um, we may do some other random off one-off specials, maybe mm-hmm. a movie here or there, maybe like a random episode of something. Uh, you never know. So keep listening. Yeah. I, I think the idea of specials in general is cool. Um, uh, I know at the time we're recording this, some people have been excited about speechless stuff we did too. And, and uh, people have been enjoying us talking about these. So, I mean, I think the idea of doing stuff aside from our devoted eight plus episode run is still cool. So I think we'll still keep doing that. But I think strange new worlds, I, I would like to move back to just enjoying it for enjoying it. Yeah. All right. So next week, possibly next week, if we don't throw another special in there for some other kind. Um, <laughs> The next robot-based anime episode will be Bubblegum Crisis. So for Bubblegum Crisis, we're going to break it down into two parts. Uh, Next week's going to be the first four episodes. Then when we hit the second half, it'll be the the last four episodes. So for the next anime version of Genreless, you can do the episodes of Tinsel City, Born to Kill, Blow Up, and Revenge Road. Eddie, if folks are looking for you online, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter uh, at uh, pugstudy.com, P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. And where right now I am venting about uh, medical politics in the U.S. So have fun with that. Uh, but if you want to just find my work, you can also find my work at pugstudy.com or you can find me hanging out on the Darker Hue Discord. And if you're looking for me, you can find me in the Darker Hue Discord. You can find me on Twitter at darker underscore Ah, underscore Hugh, but probably not because right now I am trying to write three Gen Con adventures that I should have already finished. But, you know, I'm a writer, <laughs> so I push things off the last minute. All right. Yeah, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, hit it, Mr. Webb.